Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit BroadwayBullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all. It is live. Welcome to Volume 119, the season finale for Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and what can I say? This episode is chock full of nuts. I mean, we're all a little nuts here in the theater, aren't we? We've got Julia Murney currently playing Alphaba in Wicked and some songs from her CD. We've got Adam Epstein, the producer for Hairspray, who also shares with us a little information on the up-and-coming productions of Cry Baby and Ever After. We have got two exclusive performances and an interview from the Off-Broadway Musical Sessions. And we've got the debut of Broadway Abridged Live, a radio play, which is going to feature this week, Wicked, what else? we got so much, it's going to be tough to get it all in, so I'm going to stop talking and let's just jump into our first interview. Up close. The Muppets used to say, it's not easy being green. Yes. And in fact, uh, eight shows a week, mm-hmm. I would think Julia Murney might attest that statement being true. I, it is true. And, it is uh, the truth. Julie Murney's currently appearing on Broadway as Elphaba. 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 Okay, you see that? Okay. You know, I thought it was pronounced Elphaba when I read the novel 10 yes. years ago. But actually, it's Elphaba. And it's taken from the author of the Wizard of Oz books, L. Frank Baum. Elphaba. That's right. I didn't know that. I like that, too, that right? little piece of information. <laughs> oh, sure. I'm filled with. What do you need to know about John Lennon? I got it. I got it. Besides that, you've got this fabulous new. Uh, Solo CD. I'm I not do. waiting. It's true. So it's you true. got a lot going on. I guess. <laughs> yeah. I'm too tired to notice. But I recorded it right before I went on the road with Wicked, and it came out, I think, last May is when it when they, we finally got it finished. You work with a lot yeah. of different composers on here. Yeah. Of... Well, I didn't really work with a lot of Yes, Joni Mitchell and I, old friends. Well, I mean, but um, no, but even so, did you work with Andrew Lippa? Yes, he produced he, it. He yeah. produced it, yes. yeah. So yes, that's yes. good. And he wrote the song, I'm Not Waiting, for me, so... Hence, he got the title of the whole CD. Who are some of your favorite composers that you... Well, I am very partial to Mr. Andrew Lippa. I mean, of the new, of the new guys? Yeah, I mean, the, been, the, new, of the new crop out I, there. I, I honestly have to say, I, I feel so blessed that I've gotten to work in some capacity with so many of them. That, and they're all so different, and they're all so ridiculously talented. It, you can't even pick one. It's like, it, to me, we were talking about the Tony Awards the other day. Like, how do you say... Mary Poppins is better than Curtains is better than Grey Gardens is better than Spring Awakening. They're four so totally different pieces, and like all those composers, the between Michael John Lacusa and Jason Robert Brown and Just Andrew. And, everybody loves a contest. It's I don't like a contest. <laughs> oh. It's so uh, thrilling to get to be in a room with someone who's written the song, and they're sitting there playing it, and you get to put your spin on it, and that's as opposed to. You're learning a song that Mary Martin sang on the original cast album, which is great as well. But it's just such a different, it's such an honor to, to get to do that. It really is. And, um, and they've all been wonderfully kind to me, and I, I love singing all of their stuff. 
Now, was there kind of a theme you're going for putting this together? Because you do some great choices. Like you, uh, you blend a thousand beautiful things, an Annie Lennox song that I love with "Beautiful Day" from that was from that was my random idea that I came up with one day, and I went to Tom Kitt, who uh, music directed half of the album, and we were doing a solo show, and I said, "Okay, Tom, if I want to put these two songs together, will you make them go?" I was like, "I want this part to land here and this part to land there," and then he made it be so. It worked great. It was a total surprise because I actually wasn't looking at the CD when I was listening. It was on my iPod. And I'm going, oh, a thousand beautiful things. Annie Lennox song. I love this, love this. And then all of a sudden it started kicking in a beautiful day. And I'm going, oh, this is very cool. Yay. So. Oh, I'm so glad you like it. It took me a number of days to actually approach Tom Kitt with the idea because I came up with the idea and I was like, yeah, that's stupid. Forget it. I'm not going to. I went, well, let me just ask him. And it was fine. And it's funny. I've had a number of uh, children of friends of mine and my friends have the CD. It's their kid's favorite one. They love the Beautiful Day song. <laughs> I don't know, cause maybe because they can hop around to it. I'm not really sure. But, yeah, there was really not much by way of a theme. I was at one point going to call the album Stuff I Like to Sing. <laughs> there wasn't, like, didn't, didn't go down the... I didn't want to make a, a, a theater song album necessarily because I just kind of sort of based this on the solo shows that I've done, which are not... They have some theater songs certainly in them, but a bunch of these songs as well. So I just thought, well, you know what? It's a vanity project. I'm doing it myself. I might as well just record what I want to record. And the one thing uh, that Kurt Deutsch, who's the head of Shikaboom, who I went to college with, said to me was, you have to do a song from Wicked. Because I was about to go on the road. And I was like, but I don't, he goes, you have to. It's, it's, the, it's the hook. And so I said, I don't want to sing any of the big histrionic singing songs. <laughs> a, because I didn't have an orchestra. And B, because I just felt like out of context, they, I didn't know how to play them in my head. Mm-hmm. So Not That Girl was sort of the one... And I thought, let's take that out. And Stephen Aremus, who is an old friend and the music supervisor of Wicked, kind of rearranged it and gave it a little, I don't know, what kind of esque spin, something spin. So. I think we should let our listeners hear a song from this. You right, go right ahead. Before we get too further. My personal favorite on the album. I just thought it was very fresh and inventive. Uh, I'm Not Waiting, but the song that you Andrew just said Lippa. was written right for you. Yes. So it was There's nothing cooler than having a composer go, I wrote this for you. You did? Cool. <laughs> That's nice. Two years, three years, you have had my eye. Handsome, friendly, someone else's guy. I'll see you at a party, and we will say hello. We'll chatter at a party And I'll wonder if you
four years, five years, finally get that call. You're free, I'm free, free to disenthrall. But we stagger to a party as if it were an alibi. You lose me at the party, and I stop to wonder why I've been waiting for you. Now, besides Wicked... I just spilled water all over myself. <laughs> all of you listening in the world, of, I'm, it's now become a wet t-shirt contest. That's well, hot. And it's, and it's a Beatles <laughs> green t-shirt. Yeah, it's, it's a, a green Beatles t-shirt, and it's now <laughs> really well done. Hmm, this should be on video. It would be a different audience. Yeah, the audience is now <laughs> yeah. demanding YouTube. <laughs> okay, that'll dry. Go ahead. You're also very well noted for how extremely busy you keep not just with your HO schedule but you help out a lot of the charity shows and you perform quite frequently and are very generously give back your time how how is that um i haven't been able to do it as much since being in wicked it's just hard and it's yeah. so difficult to i mean there are a few things that i said yes to because you're having a good week when they call <laughs> And it's in three or four weeks. You're like, yeah, 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 that sounds great. And then three or four weeks down the road, like, there's no way on God's green earth I can sing anything on my day off. It's sort of a mixture. Sometimes it's the charity itself that's asking you. Sometimes it's the people who are asking you. You might not know anything about that. And it's just, it's a, it tends to be, a, a, to be perfectly honest, a really fun social evening because you see your mm-hmm. friends and you get to hang out and you get, I've had moments where, you sit there and you and, and I'm watching someone else singing, someone that I know. I'm watching, you know, whatever Norm Lewis singing, and I go, I know him. That's my friend. We have pizza. How do <laughs> how do I know him? That handsome, beautifully singing. Because I would just be one of the people at the audience, sing, sitting in the audience, looking at him, and and it's it's just really cool to see your friends get to show off, you know, and do their thing and um, and and all that. And there's something like in a few weeks. Uh, a bunch of us from Wicked are going up to the um, the Hole in the Wall gang camp. Do you, it's, Paul Newman uh, started these camps. I think there's a number of them around the country for children with cancer. And they, they spend their time there. And we're going to go up and have a Wicked day and just spend time with the kids. And uh, and that kind of stuff is just – it also – it takes you out of your little 10-block radius of theater. And everything's so important. And it really isn't. I mean, it is, but it really isn't. That's what's important. You know, these – when the first thing in your head is, wow, a three-hour drive, and you have to spend the day with the kids, and then a three-hour drive back, that's a really long day on your day off. And then four seconds later, you go, shut up. <laughs> Those kids are having a much harder day than I could know. So that's, you figure it out. You sleep later. <laughs> and you figure it out. And we're very lucky, I think, as actors. Or I've always felt very lucky that I somehow got onto this benefit list. <clears throat> that I get asked to, to do these sort of things. When we did the big Actors Fund benefit of chess, I was supposed to play the wife. And about two weeks before the concert, the pop star who was supposed to play uh, Florence dropped out. So they called me and they said, okay, we want to bump you up to the wife. And the correct 
answer to that, I, I'm sure, is supposed to be, my God, really? You do? <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm going to be opposite Josh Groban. I went, oh, it's really high. I don't know if I can. I practiced the other song, and I'm really, <laughs> I could hear them on the other line going, Julia. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, okay. And I had to learn the whole thing in two weeks, which I didn't know. And that was so. Luckily, it's catchy. It's it's catchy. It's a catchy tune. Um, But so that was definitely. um, Sometimes it's it's a lesson in just before you go on stage, you go, "Why did I say yes to this? Oh my god, I'm going to absolutely throw up." But then you get through it, and someone enjoys it somehow, or you hope (laughs) anyway. All right, well, let's take a listen to another song right. now. Uh, you're going to be actually working with Tom Kitt again. I, well, barely, yes, for, for um, a momentary re- reunion. They're doing an album release party for High Fidelity. Go buy it. It's on the Shikaboom label. Um, see, uh, <laughs> I'm just promoting other people. And they're doing an album release party uh, at Birdland on, I think it's the 18th of June. And I'm going to sing one of the songs that was cut from the show that I've sung for him before. And yeah. he was one of the music directors of my album. And he, uh, the song you're going to do, we're going to play, we're not going to do, no, that we're yes. going to play here is perfect. perfect. Yes, and he wrote it all by himself. We have to say goodbye All things have to end But I keep insisting I go on resisting Why should I pretend? We pay for some mistakes We never should have made So it seems we were living in dreams But now those dreams fade In a perfect world you'd hold me forever In a perfect world, our love would stand tall But I'm not perfect And you're not perfect Cause if you were I wouldn't have loved you at And you're not perfect. 
it Cause if you were I wouldn't have loved you So I'm sorry for the million awful things I did and said And the million other things I could have said and done instead And I'm sorry you won't spend each minute growing old with me I'm sorry that our life will never be The two of us on Sunday morning Waking as the light shines through Knowing at that very moment That I love you on the wall But I'm not perfect And you're not perfect And nothing's perfect If we were perfect We'd wake up one day I've seen in other interviews, and, and you've done a lot of roles, but you kind of commented that you've missed out on having that breakthrough hit as an originator, and that, that Wicked is kind of your first real smash. Mm, yes. How yes. much do you, how much are you on the lookout for still finding that originating role as a, because you do mostly um, do original yeah. shows. Yeah. It's a tricky question. Like, on the lookout? Sure, all the time. You're on the lookout. But and the question is, are, how do you get yeah, on the Yeah, I mean, there are a trillion for, other uh, factors that come into play. I mean, I could be like, I want to play, you know, <laughs> Susie in Susie the Musical. <laughs> but I'm not the only one who wants to play Susie. You know, there's a whole other handful of, of women who we all may be exceedingly different in so many ways, but we tend to get lumped together because we sing high or whatever it may be. And there are just all kinds of things that factor into how you end up in a show. Or, or not. Yeah, because I've wondered how people do, because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the composers do seem to favor a couple core people. that They do, but then after a yeah. while, you know, sure, they favor core people, and you record the demos or, or what have you, but then Like, once, I'm sure you're one of Andrew Lippa's favorites what, at this point. You did but, Wild uh, Party, right? I dang well better be. No, <laughs> um, but but at, at some point, in what happens is that once the show is getting picked up and it gets steam and it's actually, you know, with luck going to Broadway or going out of town or whatever it is. The writers don't aren't autonomous anymore. The writers are now part of a committee, and the whole committee decides who plays Susie in Susie the Musical. If there are seven people and three of them like me and three of them like her, and they can't decide, but then there's like that one other girl, they're both like, oh, yeah, she's good and she gets it. Mm-hmm. Or for whatever reason. It's, it's a lesson I think you have to constantly relearn is the notion of you just let go. You can want things, but then you gotta got to go, 
let me just go to the camp with the kids and and f- remember, remind myself what's real. Because the rest of it, it's, it would be great. But what can I do? What can I do if I don't win? So what? It's, yeah. it's, it's sad, and I give myself to like 3 o'clock tomorrow to be pouty about it and then move on. Because <laughs> otherwise, it, it, it can. You, you can easily let it eat you up and get you really angry, and it's not worth it. Something will come along. It's, you know. Now, how long have you been doing Alphaba? I have been doing Alphaba in New York since January and on the road before that for six months last year uh, in 06. So you've had a good amount of time to yeah. get in the skin, so to speak. Yes. And it took, <laughs> it took me the whole six months of the road to figure out how to sing it. It's, and it's not just the singing, that role. It's also the screaming. There's a lot of screaming. There's a run around like an idiot. The energy output that it takes, like the difference between Alphaba and... A role like Queenie in The Wild Party, which Lipper wrote, is that the characters are so Queenie in The Wild Party is very sort of steady and straight across, and she's always kind of smooth and looking around for where trouble might be or whatever. And the show is almost entirely sung through. And it was written on me. So there was kind of, it was in my muscle and in my instrument. Wicked has, she's just more energetically out there. Alphabet is. And so it just takes so much from the minute you hit stage. You're just going, 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 going. And, um, and then running and then changing your clothes and then running and then going under the stage and running up the stairs and carrying a broom. And <laughs> it, it takes a lot. There's not a lot of when the show's over, there's not a lot of, hey, where are we going, you guys? Are we going out? <laughs> I'm like, and good night, everybody. I'm going home. Have some tea. <laughs> you know, I still haven't had a chance to see Wicked yet, but one thing that strikes me interesting about the whole phenomenon and the passionate fans is that the passion is carried over to other performers. A lot of times, the originators get all the attention, and then it's like, really, who's in Phantom right now? But all the everybody who comes in, everybody gets excited. And Do they really? See, I don't know. I, part and, of me, I, I sort of thought that people would be like, Who's that? Oh, Julie Murray. Oh, good for her. And moving on. The show, for reasons that I don't think anyone will ever be able to truly discern, caught lightning in a bottle. It just, and it's interesting because it's not like a show like Beauty and the Beast, which is really catered to kids. It's the kind of a show where the adults, like, we're going to see Wicked. Should we bring the kids? And so little ones enjoy it. Teenagers enjoy it because it speaks to anyone who's ever felt like an outcast or not enough. And, and then adults, I was just saying before, I think that it's the kind of a show people it's very easy for people to turn around and make personal. They do that, and they just, and it's become this huge, extraordinary phenomenon. And I've certainly never been part of anything like it. And it's, it's definitely, you know, there are groups, and they all have their favorite alphabas or whatever. And it's a fascinating creature, Wicked is. It's, it certainly is. And it's awfully nice to know that you're going to walk out, and there will actually be people all the way through the mezzanine sitting there because it's tough. It's hard when you come out and, you, and you're aware of empty seats and stuff like that. Because you still have to turn it on. You can't just go, well, screw it. Am I allowed to say screw it? I just said it. Oh, well. <laughs> you're allowed um, to say a lot worse. There. Oh, really? Oh, God, we should start this over. <laughs> I could go mad now. Sometimes it's hard to, to not go. Or if the audience isn't reacting the way, even in a full house, they're not reacting the way that you're used to reacting. They don't, for some reason, they don't, they're not laughing at the normal spots. And sometimes you want to go, oh, come on now. I'm tired. Now, I showed up, but the truth is they're just listening in a different way. And a, a friend of mine always used to say when she was 12 years old, her mom would bring her into the city to see shows, and she loved everything, everything, everything she saw. And so whenever she gets mad at an audience like that, she thinks of there's a 12-year-old girl out there who's loving this, and she does the show for her. 
and which I think is kind of a cool. It and it's true. Someone out there, even in the worst shows that I've done, somebody's digging it. There have been shows of Wicked where I sound like hell in a handbasket. I am so <laughs> cracked and jacked up, and I'm trying so hard and thinking I should have called out tonight. My voice isn't isn't behaving for whatever reason. And you get to the stage door, and someone's going. Your voice is so beautiful. And you're like, what show did you see? <laughs> I, I don't understand. I'm here to give you your money back. <laughs> because, But people go on this other journey that well, you're you know, not aware of. When you've got a voice as great as yours, well, then you know, you, it, it has to go down I several steps before people start getting know. disappointed. But you just you, you just have to remember it's, it's not – it is about you, but it's also about them having their own experience. So let them go. And just tell the story. Do your job and tell the story and let them go where they want to go. All right. Well, we're about to find something out. Like I said, right as you came in here, I sent off an email to okay. our mailing list to give away a Okay. CD. You want to be sad if no one wanted it, though? Yeah. What what's, what's, what's what? Look. Well, it's quick. We, you know, look at you. Watch. Gonna, watch what's going to happen. Now. We're going to find out. We're going to be like, nobody. We actually did. We had like 10 people Thank respond. Goodness. What in, if there had just been no one? In just 20 minutes. Because like, my mom's not on your mailing list. So I don't know what I was going to do right there. And she doesn't need another CD. So uh, our first winner is Kevin Gardner from oh Nashville, God, Tennessee. Kevin! Kevin, you won. Isn't that exciting? And from, oh, he's from, I love Nashville. Oh, I love Nashville so much. I sang there in the fall. Uh, and Kevin wants me to give a message to Tom, and he wants me to tell Tom to keep defying gravity. Kevin, that's very original. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure that Tom totally appreciates it. And I do love Nashville. So there you go. All right, and second up is Michael Ruth from Kansas City, Missouri. And Michael Ruth, now, oh, this is to all of you. Oh, I get it. So I'm just going to say hello, according to Michael Ruth, to all of the theater lovers out there in America's heartland. See? Yes. That's so cool. I've never been to Kansas City. Thank you, Michael, for even caring. Are you going to use my CD as a coaster? You might. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Third up is Jennifer Andrew from Lansing, Michigan. Jennifer says, if I'm a winner... Please give a shout-out to my sister, Sherry Andrew, the best twin sister in the world. Now, how sweet is that? That's, it's so altruistic. It wasn't about her. It's about her twin sister. Inappropriate. Go, Jennifer. Go. <laughs> Girl power. And our final winner didn't have a shout-out for you. We but, can make uh, something up. But, but <laughs> another one from Kansas, from Kansas City, City, Missouri. Gary, Gary Crocker. Clark. Gary, no shout-out? I just want to say, Gary, you're one of my favorite people. And I can't wait to have dinner again. No. No, my God. Don't freak out on me. It's fine. It's fine. But there was, there was just no shout-out, so I thought I'd make something up. But do you know Michael Ruth, Gary? Gary Crocker and Michael Ruth, you both live in Kansas City, Missouri. You should find each and other. And they're theater fans. Because you now both have my CD. And you're probably the only two people in Kansas City who do. So you might as well chit-chat about it. That's all I have to say. <laughs> all right. Well, I thank you so much thank for coming you. down and my giving such a pleasure. great conversation. It's totally my been, pleasure. It's been wonderful. The time has flown. Time has flown. And uh, people can get your CD on Amazon or iTunes. Yes, they can. At Chickaboom, Amazon, iTunes, and in some stores like Barnes & Noble and Borders, etc. And can people actually get tickets to Wicked while you're still going to be in it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> How they far in advance try. are they sold? That I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's always a, a tough ticket, the Wicked ticket is. Maybe someday I'll actually do another show, and they might be able to get tickets to that one. I don't know. Susie the Musical. The aforementioned Susie <laughs> the Musical. Yes. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. The Call Board. I got two quick announcements for you. We're going to be starting a new sub-program of Broadway Bullet called Broadway Bullet DIY. 
We're going to launch with some coverage of some of the shows that are going up with the Midtown International Theater Festival, or MITF, and it's going to continue with information designed primarily for those of you looking to get involved in doing it yourself here in New York, whether you're in New York or you're moving to New York. If you're not satisfied just waiting for people to cast you or another company to produce your play and you're getting involved in the showcase scene, we're going to talk to people who've been there, done that, to let you know the ropes and also maybe let you know which of those smaller companies you might want to get involved with. So it'll kind of have a different twist and uh, be looking for that on broadwaybullet.com. It should be up in a couple weeks. Uh, not sure the exact launch date yet, but it's coming very soon. Also, as you noticed, uh, Julia Murney kind of signaled out some of our listeners, and that's because they were registered. They got a notice when she came into the studio. You never know what's going to happen. So it behooves you to get registered. Go to broadwaybullet.com and click on register to become a reg registered user to the site, and it'll open you up to contests and crazy stuff like what we just did with Julia Murney. Up close. Adam Epstein's producing career began at the very young age of 21 as an associate producer on The Life, and he has gone on to produce such wonderful works as Hairspray, also The Wedding Singer, a bunch of other stuff in between, and he's also got coming up another John Waters film, Cry Baby, and an adaptation of the film Ever After. Adam Epstein, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you for, for having me. How do you get involved in producing at 21? I always tell people I had a blend of uh, insanity and a lot of passion. And uh, I, uh, I graduated NYU where I had started as a musical theater major. I had performed from the time I was 10 to the time I was, I guess, 18. And when I got to NYU and realized I didn't want to be an actor, I majored in political science. Upon graduating, I had a choice. Am I going to go to law school or am I going to stay in entertainment, which I really did love? I uh, interned for a um, casting office just to sort of get a taste for what it might be like on the other side of the table, I guess. And then uh, from there, I went to uh, work for a producer called Marty Richards, which is where I began to associate, produce, and work on The Life. I started there, worked there for a year, and then after that, I had that, that had really taken me to a place where I realized what my bliss was. You know, I was able at a young age to find out, okay, I know I, I, know I want to stay in the arts. Even when I was an actor, I used to feel uncomfortable taking orders. I said, you know, why can't we do it this way or why can't we try it this way and so on and so forth. So I think that I had a natural inclination toward, you know, controlling the creative process as opposed to just being a part of it. I uh, ended up forming my own company after the life because I had a chance to produce and co-produce a couple of uh, or a few straight play revivals, which I thought would give me some cred. View from the Bridge and Amadeus and The Crucible. Also did the Boston Company of I Love Your Perfect Now Change. And so by the time 1999 rolled around and I met Margot Lyon, we began talking about doing Hairspray, which she brought to me, thankfully. And uh, I reacted to it with great passion just on the idea of it. And uh, I guess you could say the rest was history. Because I really wanted to do the, the sort of Macintosh model of big musicals, you know, that I would originate and shape and pick the team for. And, you know, not do hundreds of them, but do maybe, you know, a, an assortment of them that would be really, really strong and, and memorable. You know, everybody knows how much money a musical can lose. And Hairspray's been very successful, but yes. I don't think anybody would say it's a phantom. Right. You know, but it's a very successful show. Is is that still a, a profitable area to be in? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, the whole, you know, it's the old adage, you can't make a living, but you make a killing. It can be incredibly profitable, and, you know, Hairspray wasn't, it, it wasn't that it just made me money. It was that it opened up the doors to do bigger and better things. I mean, you know, it, it, to do, and I shouldn't say better, that's the wrong word. You know, it gave me a chance at a young age to do something really remarkable, something I was very proud of and something that was very commercially viable, which allowed me to go ahead and say to other movie studios or other rights holders or, or great people in the business, 
hey, I want to work with you. Hey, I want to make this happen. Hey, I want to create this with you. And it gave me a credibility at a young age I probably wouldn't have otherwise had. So it, it paid dividends in more than just money, but the money certainly was nothing to sneeze at. You know, a, commer- a hit musical really does pay, and it pays big. And that's why I think people, that's the thrill of it. You know, rolling the seven, I guess, right? Was it your decision to bring Mark Shaman in on that? No, that was Margot's. She had wanted to use him. I actually didn't even really know Mark Shaman that well. I just knew South Park. And I was so amazed when I went and saw South Park that somebody, and I didn't realize there was anybody else actually other than Trey Parker, Matt Stone, had created a contemporary subversive musical that had that paid homage to the, you know, the great musicals that we, that we know and love and had really done a movie musical. For, for, I mean, to me, it was the best movie musical in years. So I was, I was really enamored with it, and I loved South Park anyway. So it combined sort of my, I guess, contemporary young vibe with, with, with you know, show tunes. <laughs> it was great. And all my friends liked it, too. And I said, see, you do like musicals. So it was, it was good. So Mark was uh, obviously indispensable there, so, and he's a great guy, and uh, I would work with him again and again. With The Wedding Singer, what most did you think was going to really work and connect about it? And then ultimately, why do you think it didn't quite connect as you, I'm sure, hoped since you produced it? Well, I, you know, I, I will say this, and it's without disavowal. You know, The Wedding Singer, you know, post-Hairspray, I had made a goal for myself, which was to create and develop things that came out of my own pipeline. But Margot Lyon was really responsible for Wedding Singer and, and called me when one of the big people who was supposed to be involved dropped out. And uh, I always tell Michael Riedel this. I did do it as a favor, and I don't mean to disavow it. I, I don't. Um, if I, I would have done it very differently. Um, I think it was undernourished. I think it was underdeveloped. I thought it was. I think it was unfinished. And I wish that hadn't been the case. You know, um, I was not involved with the developmental process of, at all. I came in as the show was already in rehearsal right before Seattle, and uh, the work hadn't been done. In fairness, um, I think Wedding Singer had potential to be a great show, but I think it remained an unrealized show. And I think a lot of it had to do with, for whatever reason, I guess they just did three readings and thought they had to do what, you know, had the structure in place, had the ideas in place. And, you know, once we once they got out of the room, it just didn't congeal. So um, and I also think, I mean, in the larger your question also has sort of a market based implication. I think it's a show that. Hardcore theater goers, and they're the people you kind of got to get at the beginning of any run, what they call in London the carriage trade. In the first six months or seven months of full price ticket buyers who really want to go, we're not interested in the wedding singer. Um, 9% of the audience, 9% was from Manhattan, which led somebody to quip in an advertising meeting, we should open in Flushing. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it was a sweet show, but it was, you know, it was, it was hardly anybody's greatest moment, and, and um, I, I really do believe it was unfinished. So, because it was sort of a conventional story, I don't think it had the quirk and the charm it should have. I do think if the two leads had been more appropriate and the, and the material had been up to it, I think they could have created something and had been smaller, you know, not $11 million. If it had been a $6 million little subversive show, if the economics were different, you know, if you could actually do shows at that size, if it could have been at the Brooks Atkinson, you know, elements like that I think would have lent it a lot more success. It'd probably still be running because, you know, it, it made money. For the, I mean, the reason it ran nine months had a low running cost, and we made money every week. And, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, you'll probably get back, you know, over time at least half the investment. You mm-hmm. know, not now, but, you know, 10 or 20 percent's come back without, you know, even being open. So, Do you think there's going to become a point ever that the off-Broadway musical or the smaller musical becomes a, a good financially viable model again? I think it is. I mean, I think, I think if you look at I mean, the two things that make musical successful and most importantly are their running costs and usually that's usually that you can't separate that out from the capitalization and here's what i mean take chicago take rent take avenue q shows all of which were two and a half to three and a half million dollars and run at three hundred thousand or less a week and can now gross both because ticket prices have gone up and there's more inventory 
you know, seven, eight hundred thousand a week sometimes. So, you know, you those are great business models. I mean, rent wouldn't be running and Chicago probably wouldn't be running if they didn't run at that. You know, and that's been the key. Not they're both fantastic shows. It has nothing to do mm-hmm. people get confused sometimes. It has nothing to do a lot of times with whether it's the greatest show in the world. If hairspray cost half of what it costs, it'd be making twice as much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Although we make money every week and we're in the fifth year and we're doing great. And you know, the movie's coming out and I think we have several more years there. But that's a huge achievement. I mean that it could potentially run eight years because it's not a cheap show to run. Where shows like Avenue Q and, and Chicago and Rent are, and notwithstanding their Tonys and their success, you know, they always have the ability to know they're going to make a good profit every week, even if it's a slow week, because they're not fighting the, the oppressive overhead that most shows are fighting. Marty Cooper speaks a lot in the show, and he's commented several times that he's upset at the dwindling numbers in the orchestra. Yeah. I'm wondering how much of this is, is based on this. Yeah. Union rules prohibit you guys from trimming stuff back. Right. Well, we make a contract with 802 that, that's set for a number of years. You know, that was what the big strike was about. And um, Well, but, like, if you start off with 20 musicians, while oh, the yeah. show's an incredible success in its yes. first year, oh, yeah, yeah, yes, a yes. year down the road, you're not allowed to trim it down to 10. That's right. And also, well, of course, and also going in, like when I'm doing Crybaby, which really needs a pit of 11, and the theater is likely to have a minimum of 15, we just don't need 15. It's not necessary. It's not, We're not doing Oklahoma. You know, with something like Ever After, it's a very legitimate sweeping R&H style lame is show, you know, a la Wicked, I guess you could say, or Phantom, you're going to need 20 musicians, and we're going to have 20 musicians, because I want real violins. I don't want to cheap out on areas that I think are gonna, they're essential to the musical sound. If you're doing a rock and roll Broadway musical, you don't need the kind of wind and, and string section that you would. 802 is committed to something that's feather bedding and unionism. I mean, it's 1936 over there, and they, they're not making arguments that are that really, in my view, have a hell of a lot of validity, you know? They're just, they're just doing it for their, for their union. So what are some of the, the biggest uh, things you want to sneak to our fans on the show about Crybaby? I think that Crybabies hopefully can be that kind of uh, in, you know, endearing and subversive show that is yet another look at the 1950s, but, it, but you know, via John Waters with idiosyncrasy, with humor, with nuance. I mean, there's a character called Hatchet Face, if you know the, the material. And uh, I think that um, what's nice about it is, and the challenge that I always felt with it, even though I really want to do, is how do we make it stand alone from Hairspray? You know what I mean? Because I'd rather it say, oh, those are lovely companion pieces, and oh, there was Hairspray, and there was this follow-up. You know, And I think because Crybaby has a great story, and because I think it tells a story about class, you know, in America, which is still very relevant without being pretentious about it. I mean, I think that has something to say. It's not necessarily life-changing, but also hopefully we'll have the, you know, the joyous ecstasy of a great musical. We can accomplish something and do something in a, in a fun genre that hopefully is smart with heart. That was where Wedding Singer, you know, what it didn't have, you know what I mean? It, it was not that it was intentionally trying to be lowbrow, but it just, you know, you didn't really feel and you didn't really fall in love with those people, you know, and you, and you should have. You know, that should have been it. it should, the decade shouldn't have mattered, you know, or the 80s should have been a great springboard for pure nostalgia. Maybe we're not far away from it yet. I don't know, you know, but the 50s inspire something else. And baby boomers do buy tickets, which doesn't hurt. This year, there's been, I think, a pretty undeniable backlash from the critics about musicals based on movies. Yeah. Do you think about that when you plan on your marketing for, for this? Um, I, think I, I, mean, I think I'm always cautious, and I think I always have a certain level of anxiety. I always climb a wall of worry. I think as a producer, you kind of have to. But I, I, I do believe that you can't be terribly ideological about it. You know what I mean? I think you have to pick... I don't pick material from a catalog because it's a title. Crybaby is not a well-known title. There's many other titles I could have picked that if you're going to say, oh, let's yeah. do that, it'll make money, that's hardly a well-known title. So I come at things first because in truth... And I think David Merrick probably would have told you this if he had been here. Cameron would tell you this. 
Hal Prince would tell you this. The art dictates the commerce, not the other way around. If you say, hey, we're going to do show X just to make money, you probably don't make money. If you do, hey, we're, let's try this. This is a great idea, and this really could have something. What inevitably can follow, can follow, is, is an enormous level of success. I mean, Avenue Q was that. Spamalot was that. Wicked was certainly that, and so was Hairspray. You know, when we were developing Hairspray, everybody said, oh, a man in drag on stage, and what is that? And, you know, and it, it, nobody really understood what it was until it was like they heard a demo or they came to a reading and they said, oh, my God, this is fresh and this is vital. and This is a, a lovely a way to take a look at the 60s, which hadn't really been done before in that capacity. So I think, you know, I think you can't second-guess them, the critics, too much, I don't think, or the press. I think you have to do what it is you love, and, and there's, most things have been an adaptation. There's no moratorium on adaptations of books or novels or, or operas or anything, or revivals, certainly. So I, I, think, I think if good work is done next season, I think if Little Mermaid's great and we're great and Young Frankenstein's great, it just shows that some movies work and some movies don't. I'm wondering how familiar you are with the aftermarket, because let's put a hypothetical out there. I, I certainly hope Ever After does well. I love the movie. But it strikes me as the type of show that if, for some reason, it didn't do great on yeah. Broadway, that every community theater in America will want to do that show. I think that that's right. Here's the thing. I'm going to go back to my same point. It's romance. It's an old. It's, I wanted to do an old school sentimental musical that wasn't snarky. And we need a new one. We're, I yeah, think didn't apologize. Tired of doing Oklahoma. Yeah, and, 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 and well, we need that. But also, you know, what's nice is Hairspray is one of the few pastiche musicals that doesn't do the wink, wink, isn't it a hoot? It doesn't do that the snark factor, as I call it. And I really wanted to do something now that I've done what I call popsicles for a number of years. I wanted to do something that was sentimental. You know, I want it obviously to be witty, and you know, it has to be. You know, it can't be so utterly free of irony that you have no idea what you're looking at. But it will be sentimental. It'll be straight up, and it'll be. About falling in love and it's about romance and I would like to take a formula which it is in Cinderella which was bended I think very successfully in that movie and make it stage worthy I mean in watching the movie how I got to it I was watching it one day I had seen it originally I was watching it on cable, and um, I was song spotting it. I was going, oh, my God, there's a musical number right there. Yeah, and, I, I can see it very easily. And I was going, there's a musical number there. Okay, musical And I went, oh, my God, i got to call 20th Century Fox. i got to get this. And then, you know, lo and behold, Marcy Heisler and Zena Goldrich, who've long been in the wings waiting to write their show, uh, submitted a demo to me that was just spectacular and beautiful and, and, and heartbreaking. We've had one reading. We have another one in July, and then we go out of town in the fall of 08. We were actually ready to have the theater. I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> but we're on our way with it. So it's exciting, and um, Doug Hughes of Doubt fame is going to direct it. He was very attracted to this, and uh, he brings a wonderful credibility to anything he does, I think. So it's a great group. If it were to flop, is yeah. there money yes. in that community yes. market? Is there yes. money Look, to make it worthwhile Susical is the most licensed show in America right now. Making so much money for its for basically it's Stephen Lynn, you know, it's authors, but everybody, yeah, the partnership, the most licensed, the most toured, the most performed, other than Grease Annie and there's another title, but Susical is the most heavily licensed, and obviously everybody knows it was a big flop in New York. So yeah, I think so. And is I mean, that making it up to the producers? She can, sure, absolutely, of course. Yeah, and also it could, you know, you never know, it could revivify it, it could go out on another tour, it could have another life, you just don't know. Because I think one problem with with musicals is there is a heartland out there in America listening to the show, you right. know, love shows, but often they don't connect with the same things that Manhattan No, very true. With. That's very right. Like you were just saying with the wedding singer, you know. Yeah, that was, singing. you know, Hairspray, Hairspray's now a tourist friendly friendly show. Its second tour is out now selling out in places like Tulsa and all these places. So obviously it you know it took a little name recognition to get it out there, but it, it does great business. 
does great business in New York for mainly kids with families, mothers and families, and what you would probably call red state folks, I guess, you know. You know, I believe that with Crybaby you have the same thing because I think even though it pushes an envelope and there are things in it that are going to sort of titillate and, and, you know, sort of go, ooh, should we say that or shouldn't we say that? You know, it's all done with affection, you know what I mean? It's not out there just to offend people, um, nor is it offensive at all, but you know what I mean? It might have an edge, but it's a sweet edge. Um, Ever After really doesn't have that. I mean, Ever After is sort of the all-encompassing family show. Well, that's not necessarily how we're... We're not trying to create it to be so square. But, you know, Mm -hmm. certainly it's something that can be heavily licensed beyond and heavily toured. And that that does factor into the decision. It's not the only decision. I guess, uh, you know, I've often been accused of being pretty middle-brow, but that's okay. You know, these musicals Mm -hmm. are 10 to $12 million, sometimes more. So I don't think there's a place for avant-garde bankruptcies. (laughs) as uh, As for a final thought, if you're willing to share this... What has been your biggest mistake that you have learned from? I would say the best lesson I've had, and I, and I made sure not to repeat it in the crybaby development process, has been Wedding Singer, because I think that it just shows you that um, titles ultimately don't hold all the currency people think they do. And you have to be very, I mean, in other words, when I came in a wedding singer, I, as I said, oh, well, worst case scenario, we'll make the money back and make some money on it. Maybe it'll turn into a little something of a grease or maybe not a grease, but something that might have a life. And I think that's faulty thinking because I don't think that, you know, had the material been good or had material been better, it would have worked infinitely more. And I think the lesson is, is you got to do what you love. You got to go with your heart. And, you know, if my heart had been in that, I think there would have been a different result. And, 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 and for whatever reason, it wasn't. And that's a shame. You know, and I love the team behind it, and I'm, I, I love, personally, I, I love the show because I was part of it. But, you know, I do understand what people didn't like about it and why it didn't work. And, I, and that's why I did a workshop with Crybaby to make sure that we could accomplish getting the show staged and getting the kinks out. Not all of them, but making sure the show is properly developed So as we go to, because we open in La Jolla in the fall before we come to Broadway, that we're out in La Jolla tweaking and we're not excavating. You know what I mean? We're out there trimming a little bit. We're not out there looking around going, wait a second, you know. We are in big, big trouble, and we have no time to fix it. The underlying answer to your question is is, is is really believing in something and doing that for the right reasons. You know, It's almost like don't tempt the universe and say, oh, we'll do that. We'll make a few bucks. I, I think that that's scary. And I think a lot of people, if I'm not going to name the shows, and there have been a number of shows that have come out now and in the last few years that have thought just that. And I think, um, look at them. Most of them have been burned, you know, because the work wasn't done. And, it, you know. Some of them have been jukebox, some of them have not. Look at those titles and look at where they went, you know? So I, I think that's an important lesson to learn. Do what you love. All right. Well, Adam, I thank you so much for speaking for so candidly me. with us. And I wish you all the best of luck. Looking thank forward you. to your upcoming shows. Thank Look you. forward to the movie of Hairspray. And It's a joy. It really is. So <laughs> okay. thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. On the positive side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again on the positive side. I want to remind everybody that if you have any opinions about what I have to say, what I've said, or any ideas, just email me personally at broadwaymarty at AOL.com. I have a few views about this season and the Tony Awards. I was at the Tony Awards. I, I love going there. Can't watch it from home anymore. Can't sit at home in front of a TV. We have to be there feeling the electricity and everything. It, it's great fun. Uh, And this year I got to go to a wonderful party. Uh, Lou and Kelly Gonda put on a a party at at Tony DiNapoli's for Grey Gardens. Wonderful big party. Uh, Room was full. The food was great. Had a great time. Congratulated Christine Ebersole. Congratulated Miss Wilson for winning their Tonys. A great time was had by all. Uh, But I want to talk about the actual award show. I found there were a few unnecessary things. As you know, my views on the Fantasia bit, uh, I gave them last week. 
and I feel even stronger about it. Forgive me, she was totally unnecessary. We didn't need a bit from last year's Tonys. They could have saluted the Atlanta theater without doing a bit from Color Purple. I didn't think a bit from Jersey Boys was necessary. I didn't think Usher was necessary. I didn't think the little bits they had before the station breaks, acting out parts of the show saying what's coming up, that was necessary. My point is, is that some of the shows that are on Broadway that didn't get nominated could have had a little chance to shine. As I said last week, if indeed the award show is an advertisement for Broadway, show everything. And I think this should be in future years too. I think if a show did not get nominated and if people in it get nominated, like, for instance, Legally Blonde, have a few moments, give them a shot on the award show. It might draw some extra business, as it did for the shows that won. I understand that the Spring Awakening box office went through the roof yesterday. Give these shows a chance. I remember last year, The Wedding Singer had a bit on the Tony Award show, and uh, they did a lot of business the next day. Give these people a shot. Please think about this in the future. We don't need last year's news. I got to say, forgive me for saying this, all you Fantasia fans, I found her totally unappealing. I would not go see the show because of her. I would have rather seen Jennifer Hudson up there singing, and I am telling you, I think that would have been more apropos than doing this. A few more little things I, I want to say about this last season. Of course, I have a sore point. Pirate Queen has been totally run out of town. They made sure of it. They hammered the nails into the coffin. I have a little view on that. I think possibly the producers also let them do it to them. They didn't put any money behind the show for advertising or anything like that that might promote it. But thank God they recorded an album and we will have a CD on July 3rd. So for all you fans of the show, and I know there are a lot of you out there, the recording will be available on July 3rd. Uh, we might have it on July 2nd at Colony if you want to stop in. One other view in my little meanderings, I think Spring Awakening deserved a lot of what it got. It's a wonderful show, but I don't think it should have gotten the award for choreography. You had Matthew Bourne, Rob Ashford, Jerry Mitchell, all nominated for Tonys. All of their work was superior to anything that was in Spring Awakening. Spring Awakening just got a bunch of kids to jump around and move around. That created a lot of excitement, but Choreography, no. Just watching the scene from Mary Poppins on the, on the award show, you see how much work went into that show alone, how much precision work and everything like that. You know, I, I know it looks like a lot of other things, but it's still great. It's still very entertaining. I disagreed with that, and as I said, I disagreed with a few other things that, that were presented. Otherwise, a wonderful time was had by all. So I want to say uh, I want to wish you farewell for a few weeks, and I'll be back with my views on things in about four or five weeks. So as I say, if you have any views on what I had to say uh, today or for the season, just email me at broadwaymarty at aol.com. Until then, stay on the positive side. On the positive side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. On the boards. Sessions is a new musical with book music and lyrics by 
Albert Tapper, and we have a couple of the cast members and Albert and the accompanist in the studio today to talk about the show and grace us with a couple numbers. How's everybody doing? Great. Very nice. Thank yeah, you we're for awake. Us. First off, uh, everybody take a quick second to introduce yourselves, also so listeners can identify your name with your voice. Uh, I'm Al Tapper, which shouldn't be hard because everybody else is a woman, yeah. Except for Thanks Fran. a lot. <laughs> Uh, I know I got it. Can I do that again? No, that's perfect. <laughs> Wasn't easy growing up with, and you're not helping. I might have to go to a session. Oh. <laughs> I'm Trisha Raffier. I play Mary in sessions. I'm Amy Bodner, and I play Lila. And I'm Fran Manaric, and I'm the uh, conductor and musical director. What is Sessions about, and what drew you to write this? <laughs> uh, Sessions is about uh, a man who is a therapist, uh, but with a certain amount of humanity. He makes mistakes. Um, he struggles with trying to help his patients as best he can. He also has problems in his own life, and ultimately the patients reverse that and help him through some of the difficulties that he's having. So it's... Um, it's pretty true to life in a sense that we all tend to put our therapists on a pedestal, but uh, they know that um, our own health pretty much depends on getting them off the pedestal, and we kind of knock Dr. Peterson off the pedestal a few times in the show. So how long has the process been for you writing the show? Uh, exactly two and a half years. Uh, I started to write this show um, on, I was on, I took my children on a cruise and while they were playing, uh, I sat with a blank piece of paper in front of uh, the ocean, and uh, I said, gee, you know, it's about time maybe I wrote something that I had some experience with. And of course, therapy came to mind right away since I've had that a number of years. <laughs> so uh, it started off, and then it was written pretty much in chronological order, starting off with the therapist uh, singing about himself, and, and as the period went by, uh, a lot of songs were changed. Uh, there's probably been about 40 songs written for the show, which 20 are in. So you get a pretty amazing, experienced cast with you for the show, and including two of the lovely young ladies that are here today. Uh, awesome cast. I mean, I mean, I'm surrounded by two beautiful women with two incredible voices, and uh, I have to tell you, this. I, I'm. Uh, a lot of people say to me, "I'll, you, you know, go write them, but don't sing them." because I can't sing, or, 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 or I think I can sing. My brother thinks I sing really well. He's the only one. Even Family my kid, always thinks Even my kids well. don't think I sing. <laughs> but when I hear these two women, great performers, sing songs that I wrote, it brings out something in the songs that I don't think I created. I think they did. So it's pretty wonderful to hear it. I never get tired of hearing them sing. <laughs> well, you. before we go further, why don't we hear one of the songs uh, here live in the studio? Uh, what one would you like to perform first? Uh, you want to set it up? First song would be Feels Like Home because it comes uh, pretty early on in the show and uh, one of the characters, Mary, is an abused woman. Uh, her husband abuses her, but she has a difficult time with that abuse because she's used to it. She, she was abused by her father and ultimately by her husband and she still loves him. She realizes that uh, there's a line that says love doesn't end with the back of a hand. So she's uh, asked to explain to everybody else what it, what would she say to her husband uh, if she had the opportunity and she sings this song. And this is sung by Trisha? This yeah. is sung by Trisha and it's called Feels Like Home. All right. You've heard me so many times before 
Still I never seem to learn How to walk out that door I don't know how to stop needing you Like a drug you can't control Steals your heart, destroys the soul Yet feels like home And I feel home With every breath I take When you're around You make my body shake I look for change In everything you do I'm a fool To still believe in you Maybe if I'd worn that gold bread Or I hadn't cut my hair or put out your cigarette I know that somewhere deep inside you care And your rage, it keeps me safe Familiar as my father's face It feels like home Feels like home And I feel home Whenever I hear the blues My beggar's home has no right to choose It's always you Who sings the melody I'm a fool Not to believe in me If I left Would you be crying Appealing to my heart to stay You promise me A bed of roses And tell me Things would be I take when you're around you make my body shake I look for change in everything you do I'm a fool to still believe in you just a fool I still Trisha, what's the, some of the stuff you've done leading up to this show? Because you have you quite a resume. Um, yeah, well, I've done um, a few off-Broadway shows, quite a few off-Broadway shows. I've been affiliated with uh, Golf the Musical. Some of you might remember that one <laughs> <laughs> um, that ran a few years ago. Uh, I also have been uh, in and out of Forbidden Broadway over the years. Um, I just recently did Shout, the mod musical that ran at the Julia Miles Theater. But my, my favorite show I've been affiliated with is The Boy From Oz. I had the wonderful pleasure of working with Hugh Jackman and a fabulous, fabulous cast. I was the uh, understudy for, Liza, for the Liza Minnelli character. Is Hugh Jackman as nice as everybody says, or is he, he really secretly like this tormented evil person? Oh, no, he's, he's a dreamboat. <laughs> he's like... One of the most professional, most talented people I've ever worked with. So it was just, and he's as charming and charismatic off stage as he is on stage. So everything you hear about him is absolutely true. He's a wonderful man. The piano arrangement is fantastic. I imagine you must have a lot of fun on the show. 
I have a great time playing this music, and, and I do have to say that I am so impressed and thankful that Stephen Gross did such beautiful music supervision Absolutely. and orchestrations. There's such um, a cinematic quality that he's given to uh, the music. Well, should we hear one more of the song here? You get ready to sing another one and set this one up? This is a song that comes near the end of the show. Uh, Dr. Peterson has been essentially seduced, at least emotionally seduced, by this beautiful woman named Lila, uh, who has her own problems, her own issues, and she finally has somebody that's listening to her uh, as opposed to just staring at her. And what she really doesn't see, of course, is that Dr. Peterson's job is to listen to her. But she falls for him, and he is having some issues at home. He's been married for 14 years. He has some problems. He's not getting as much as at home as he would like, to say it in the vernacular. Uh, and uh, he, But he does realize that this would be the biggest mistake of his life if he ever, ever crossed that line with a patient. And he comes to that reality, and he calls Lila. He meets her at the Boathouse restaurant in Central Park, and he tells her that uh, he can't possibly uh, go on with this, so that he uh, finds her incredibly beautiful and wonderful, but that she needs a man that really appreciates her, and he can't be that man. He leaves, and she sings a song called I Will Never Find Another You, and she genuinely feels a lot of affection and love for Dr. Peterson. And Amy, you'll be singing this one? That's right. I will never find another you Even if I search the whole world through It catches me by surprise How you mesmerize As you always turn gray skies to blue I will never find another you Even if I started life anew So I've sealed my fate What's left to celebrate No one comes as close to great as you Although I'll never see you anymore The thought of a brief affair is always in the air It's my first breath in the morning It's my first breath in the morning It's my first breath in the morning And my last breath find another you wouldn't even have the slightest clue of how I could just erase always there'll be a trace of that classic face that I once knew I will never find another Tell us a little bit about your background. You also have quite a, a resume underneath your, your belt. Oh, 
Thanks. <laughs> uh, let's see. Are you shy? Do you not want to talk? Oh, no, no. I appreciate I, I, the compliments. Um, well, I played Laurie in Oklahoma on Broadway um, opposite Patty Duke. When Patty Duke came into the show, I became Laurie. I replaced Josephina Gabrielle. And um, I played Marguerite in the national tour of the Scarlet Pimpernel opposite Douglas Sills. And then after Douglas left, opposite Ron Bomer. And um, I've been involved actually in quite a few new things in the past, uh, I would say, five or six years. I recently did uh, the world premiere of Ace, which was at the Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park and the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. So um, I've been lucky, been busy. It's going to be running for 12 weeks? Yeah, it's going to run through the middle of August, and uh, hopefully uh, it will then move somewhere else into another theater. I think that all depends on on those people that, you know, we call critics. Uh, we like them. We love them, by the way. <laughs> we adore them. We wouldn't be able to live without a critic uh, reviewer. So if the reviews are what we hope, um, I think the show will continue on beyond the uh, middle of August. But yeah, at least Al, we run until the middle of August. Al, you were also involved in a little PBS special that a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with. Yes, I produced uh, Broadway, The Golden Age, now on DVD. And it did play on PBS, but it also played in the theaters uh, for about a year. And then it played all over the world. It played in Japan. It played in Australia. And it was about the golden age of Broadway, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when nobody was allowed to, to photograph anything. So if you... Uh, wanted to see Angela Lansbury in MAME or Carol Channing in um, Hello, Dolly, you really never had to do, you had, could unless you saw them on the Ed Sullivan show or, or some other uh, television show. So we were able to interview these people, uh, and they were well into their uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s. Uh, we mm -hmm. had Faye Ray, we had, uh, before she died, we had Kitty Carlisle who just died. It, 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 we had 110 interviews for this movie taken over about five years, and uh, about 25% of them have passed away since the movie was released just a few years ago. So we, we think we've saved uh, memories that we never would have had if, if uh, Rick McKay, who, who directed this, uh, did a remarkable job. And uh, uh, now he's working on uh, Broadway, The Next Generation, uh, but... Is that like Star Trek? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel you're going to be upset that it's well, not the same well, Captain Kirk. Yeah, it, 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 it is a little bit like that. Unfortunately, they're still alive, though. <laughs> the ones from the old, the, from Broadway, the Golden Age. Little by little, we're losing them, and they're and they're such tremendous, uh, such tremendous talent, so valuable to us that it's nice to be able to have them and remember them this way. Well, and people get to make some new memories with your great new show, and. Uh, let everybody know where you can get the tickets, where to go, and all that great information. Well, there's, you can get it in Ticketmaster or any other place that you can get tickets, or you can call or email www.sessionsthemusical, and you can buy tickets, or you can call the box office, or you can call me. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to get you tickets. We're at the Peter J. Sharp Theater on 42nd Street at the Playwrights Horizons Building between 9th and 10th, and we're there Tuesday through Sunday. Well, thanks so much for coming down and talking with us about the show and for your great performances. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Broadway Abridged Live, when you just don't have three and a half hours for a show.
Broadway Abridged presents Wicked Abridged, or How to Destroy Your Favorite Childhood Movie. The show starts with a dissonant song as people jump around in what is apparently choreography. Enter a blonde. Hi, I'm Glinda or Glinda or something. My character is beautiful, blonde, and Caucasian. Even though I'm the secondary character of the show, I was written to steal the thunder away from the main character every chance I get. I hope that doesn't make her character utterly uninteresting by comparison. Some normal-heighted people in rags enter with the presumption of being munchkins. Tell us, Blondie, whatever happened to the Wicked Witch of the West? Yes, tell us, Glinda. You tell. You tell. I look like I'm homeless. Well, the Wicked Witch of the West was born a bastard. Scene. Exposition. Enter Wicked Witch's mother. I like to fornicate with traveling salesmen, the most wondrous profession here in the magical land of Oz. Here, mother of the Wicked Witch, have a green bottle. What is it, traveling salesman of the week? I don't know, but it's going to be very important during the last five minutes of the play. Crap! I'm pregnant! And it's coming out! Gasp! It's hideous! It's grotesque! It's a leftover prop from Bat Boy. And so, the Wicked Witch grew up and went away to high school to be forever played by a 30-year-old. Scene, a horrible ripoff of Hogwarts School of Wizardry. Enter Green Girl with glasses. Hi, I'm the Green Wicked Witch, and my character is going to be boring for the first half of this musical. I'm her sister, and the only quality my character has is a wheelchair. And I'm the asshole that raised two Wicked Witches. Exit Wicked Witch's father, never to appear in this story again. Green girl, because you are green, I shall oppress you. Oh, how oppressive a life it is being not white. Um, what's that you're holding? A timeline of American history since the Civil War. What for? Drilling the paper-thin parallel into your head. Ah. Scene, principal's office. Enter schoolmistress. Wicked Witch, you have a collection of amazing magical powers, the detail of which we won't really bother explaining until it is immediately convenient at the time. I'm going to take you under my wing so you can learn magic, and then you can meet the wizard. It's my dream to meet the wizard, possibly because I lacked a proper father figure. Nobody cares. In the meantime, you must live with the faux racist Glinda or Galinda, with whom hilarious hijinks will ensue. They don't. Scene. Muggle Studies 101. I am a goat. <laughs> Not a majestic part animal, part human, like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Just some goat. <laughs> and although I only appear for three, four minutes tops, I am the central conflict of this show. Central conflict? But you're so cute and furry. Well, you see... <laughs> talking animals are the minority, and the wizard is trying to get all animals to stop talking or something like that. Oh, goat, how oppressive a life it is being born outside of the norm. What's that in your hand? It's a timeline of all events leading up through World War II. See, audience? Yeah, I think they get it. No, I don't think they do. There's a parallel here to the holiday. They get it. Also, the Japanese and They get it, all right? Stop cheapening history. Cheapening history? Or forcing you to look at it from another angle. Shut up. You're so cute! <laughs> Stupid godson. Enter a prince. Hello! I am the horribly underwritten male romantic lead, and I adore you, Glinda or Galinda. And I adore you, prince. We are both popular and physically enticing. But wait, I also adore the Wicked Witch! You do? Why? <laughs> well, shit beats me! Prince, I love you too, because you're pretty and... Inner beauty is just something I lie to myself about when I look into the mirror. Love, love, love! love. Well, damn, 
Enter Bach, a munchkin twice the size of Glinda or Galinda. You're so beautiful, Glinda or Galinda. How about we marry and our children will be seven feet tall? Go suck an egg. Scene, dorm room. Glinda or Galinda, you and I get to go see the Wizard of Oz in Emerald City. How can I show my gratitude? Why don't you offer me that black pointy hat, which is just like the one Margaret Hamilton wore in the original movie? And throughout the play, I could offer you a black cloak, black cape, and a broom to make you look more and more like she did. And the audience will be able to recognize these attempts at humor from a mile away. <laughs> <Audience>. <laughs> <laughs> Audience members respond. I'm 13, and I also giggle, so I can relate. This is the best musical ever, and the only one I've seen. Scene, Emerald City. Wow, the Emerald City is really midtown Manhattan with green lighting. Want to buy some Folklies? No, thanks, sketchy munchkin. How about a ticket? Hey, Glinda or Galinda, let's go see a show. What show? Ozmania? Actually, I was thinking more Avenue Q. Too soon. Suddenly, a giant, awesome wizard head set piece pops out. It is I! The, the Wicked Witch. Surprise! Just like in the movie, I'm still some guy behind a curtain. And I'm his accomplice or something. Schoolmistress? You have time to work in school and be in the government or whatever? Shh! Wicked Witch, here's a book of spells written in a dead language that nobody knows. I need you to cast a spell on this actor in a monkey costume. <laughs> That's monkey language for, if I wasn't playing the part of a monkey, I wouldn't be able to afford food. <laughs> what makes you think I have magical powers? What makes you think I can read that language? How would the audience take a leap of faith that I'm suddenly able to read a language that nobody in the world... Would you stop asking questions regarding the discernible logic of a musical that obviously has none? The Wicked Witch says the spell... Oogly, boogly, boogly. And suddenly, lots of monkeys can fly. <laughs> now I have flying monkeys to do my bidding. You couldn't have just used birds? She's trying to use logic again! Guards, get her! Oh, no, you don't. I'm switching from glasses to contact lenses, and then I'm going to have a meaningless moment where I fly! The Wicked Witch flies, powered by a magical technology called the $112 theater ticket. Ooh. Plus surcharge. Scene, the house of the Wicked Witch's bitter wheelchair sister. Sister, I've been told that you've become a bitch and enslaved the munchkins? Yes, it's because I'm angry that I'm in a wheelchair. You've been in a wheelchair your whole life. Why lash out now? Because now I love this seven-foot-tall munchkin. No, I hate you! Spell on you to make your heart disappear! Ah! Oh, right. I love him. Sister! Idiot. The Wicked Witch chants a spell. Oogly boogly boogly. And now the munchkin is the Tin Man. Wait, I don't get it. If the short munchkin's just being played by a normal-heighted guy, are we supposed to believe that the tall Tin Man is really a short munchkin? They're trying to use more logic! Throw a house on her! The musical plays off of the original Frank L. Baum story over and over like this for a good hour, eventually. Scene, Oz. Wizard, because you were generally evil and sang two songs that needlessly stopped the plot, you must leave Oz. Sure thing. Let me just get my green bottle. That's strange. Didn't the Wicked Witch's mother have a green bottle in the first scene? That's why the Wicked Witch had magical powers. Because her mother was from Oz, and the green bottle means that her father 
was me! How do you figure? Really, I don't. Don't you see? Because of your absolute disregarding of logic, the Wicked Witch, my best friend, is now dead. Tweens in the audience start to cry. <laughs> I'm never going to tell any of my friends to see this show ever. Oh, no. WWDD. Huh? What would Disney do? Have her be alive and live happily ever after with the prince? <gasps> Yay! Let's see this musical a billion times! And so, once again, the Broadway stage was made safe for little girls who would grow up to be fag hags. Oh, look. The internet has Broadway message boards. Blackout. Broadway Abridged Live didn't just get pulled down by a tornado. It has been presented to you by these incredible actors. I'm Josh Burstein, and I'm a friend to small business. I'm Rachel Pincus, and I'm on strike from the Lollipop Guild. I'm Ashley Adler, and my shoes don't fit. I'm Gil Road, and I'm a rip-off artist. Catch more Broadway shows ten minutes at a time at broadwayabridge.com. Top of the trades. Avenue Q is finally going on tour, and I was there to catch many of the actors heading your way. So, going out on tour with Avenue Q, I just stumbled into an old college friend. How you doing? And your name is? Good. My name is Cole Porter. Yeah, we all had a hard time believing it, too, <laughs> in college, but uh, I haven't seen you since I left Missoula. You went to the University of Montana. I did. I went to the University of Montana, and I left for a while. I was uh, doing a lot of regional theater, and then directed a few theaters. I was in a uh, theater in Colorado, and then I I ended up in Las Vegas working as an actor out of Las Vegas and uh, actor musician going into New York and LA and doing different things. Actually, a, a friend moved from New York and moved to Vegas and said, uh, Avenue Q's have an audition. So I auditioned for the Avenue Q in Las Vegas, was lucky enough to get cast in that, and then um, they called me for this tour, and I, of course, said absolutely. So where all are you going to be touring? We're going to start in San Diego for about five weeks, then we go to San Francisco, then we go to Los Angeles, and then we kind of jut over into the Midwest. I know we go to Tucson, and after that I'm unsure. But you can go to AvenueQ.com to check out all of the tour listings because we're going all over. We're going to be everywhere this year. Now, have you toured with the show before? Uh, yeah, I've done a couple of different tours. I toured with the Montana Rep and <laughs> Ought Ring Your Bell, but I've never done the first national tour, which I'm very proud to be doing for with Avenue Q. So what's your favorite thing about touring, and what's your least favorite thing about oh, touring? My favorite thing about touring, I think, is being able to go to different places, uh, check out different areas, and uh, you know, bring a show like Avenue Q to different places and just open it up to uh, people who haven't maybe had the chance to come to New York to see it. My least favorite thing about tour is how hectic it is sometimes. I'm very much not a put-together person, so I am one of those people that should have a PA, and I don't. But, you know, you get used to it. Life on the road as a gypsy is a lot of fun. Hi, my name is Kelly Sawyer. I am playing Kate Monster and Lucy the Slut in Avenue Q. I play the same two roles in Las Vegas and also on Broadway. My least favorite thing about touring is having to live out of a suitcase. You become very limited on the amount of clothes and shoes that you can take. And as every woman knows, especially every New York woman, that's that's a challenge. <laughs> my favorite thing, well, my husband will be on, on the road with us to uh, go and, and visit all the kinds of different uh, cities that I've never been to and do touristy things there, which is not something you always get to do when you're working. Hi, I'm Christian Anderson, and I am playing Nikki and Trekkie in the Avenue Q tour. I played it on Broadway. In fact, I'm playing it now for another week. My favorite thing about going on tour is uh, seeing the country, you know, going out and seeing places I normally wouldn't get to go uh, by myself, you know. Making friends in Des Moines or Denver or San Francisco or whatnot. Yeah. And your least favorite thing about touring? Well... 
you never really get a sense of home. Actually, I'm going to, um, I'm only going on tour for a little bit because uh, I live in California and they're letting me go and, and do the show in California. So my wife and daughter are there. So I actually get a, will get a sense of being at home. Curtain call. We'll be back on July 19th with more episodes, but a few shows won't be. These shows have posted closing notices, Radio Golf, Company, Corum Boy, and The Pirate Queen. So get to them quick while you still got a chance. Once again, this is your host, Michael Gilbo. Thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet, and see you July 19th. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all, it is live. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.